Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Welcome to Central Vineyard. As, as it's been said, my name is Tammy, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and it's great to see you. Um, I've just come away. I'm back here. It feels weird to say back here because you're like, where have we been? I've been in Nottingham this week. We've had a, a national um, a leaders conference, which is basically all the area, regional, kind of anyone who has leadership in the Vineyard Churches, uh, UK and Ireland, anyone who leads leaders, we've kind of met together. So there's about 100 of us in a room um, worshiping the Lord. And I can honestly say that God is on the move across our nation. And it's really exciting. It's really exciting. So I feel really refreshed, but I feel like I've been gone for ages. It's been two years since we've been anywhere like that, conference-wise. Um, so it was also really exhausting too. Um, and, and maybe that's the way you feel this morning. But mostly I'm wondering is, are you stressed? Are you stressed? Because I read um, an article via a HR company and it was all about the levels of stress in the UK. And the, result, the results showed that overwhelmingly uh, the majority, so 79% of UK adults feel stressed at least one day a month. That could be today. That could be your day. On average, a typical UK adult feels stressed approximately 8.27 days a month. Uh, so that's, that's about twice a week. And nearly half of that um, representation admit to feeling stressed five or more days each month. And I read that and initially I thought mm, half the population could be women um, feeling stressed for five days a month. If you don't know, you don't know. I'm sorry. But so, <laughs> so out of that, nearly a third of adults feel stressed 10 or more days a month. And one in every 14 people, so that's 7% of the UK, feel stressed every single day. That basically just leaves 21% of the UK population who never feel stressed. So I'm just like, if you're here this morning, make yourself known. <laughs> we want to know the secret. And actually, if you're in the category of being 18 to 54, then you're most likely to feel overall stressed. If you live in Plymouth, you're more likely to be stressed than if you live in Edinburgh. Edinburgh apparently is the least stressful city um, to live in. But for those of us who live here in the East Midlands, as categorised on the survey, we are most likely to be stressed in the UK about sleep or lack of. So there you go. If you're tired this morning and stressed about your lack of sleep, you're in good company. And we heard recently on a talk that I did that the thing that might keep us stressed uh, or anxious is mass media. Mass media determines our daily headlines. And they determine that because they're interested in sales. They're interested in online watches and clicks because it pays them a lot of money. And so in order to keep that going for them, what they do is they play into our stressors. And what they do is they paint the bleakest pictures about that. There's only like a few categories in life that, that hum, like overall, humanistically, we, we get stressed about. And that's usually like death, money. Yeah, everything actually eventually leads to death, but it's about money, the future. But it sells and it gives them a huge amount of income. And there's a direct correlation between the amount of media a person consumes and their level of stress or anxiety. So we, we did that a couple of weeks ago. But stress and anxiety are ultimately born from our fears, our fears. 
our fears about the future, our fears about what it holds, what does it mean for me? And so you're thinking, what's that got to do with today? You know, we're meant to be carrying on on our series, which we are. Um, But we want to look at how as individuals and together as a church, how do we face our future with faith instead of fear? Facing our future with faith instead of fear. And that's a continuation of the series that we've been on this year over the past couple couple of weeks titled An Invitation to a Journey. And this journey is drawn from the Old Testament book of Exodus through to Numbers, which is where we are today, and how God's people are led on a journey out of Egypt and into the promised land. Well, today we're reaching the edge of the promised land because it's more about their failure to enter into the promised land and their continual bickering and grumbling and moaning against God. This people that were were rescued and saved go on this journey, and it seems that as they go along, they become more faithless and disobedient. You know, God enabled them to escape Egypt. He, He prepared the way. They escaped their oppressors. He guaranteed them victory, but their sin just kept them in the desert for a long time. You can catch up on the full series because we're too far in now to go over it all. But um, if you visit the Central Central Vineyard website, you can go to the media page and that will link you to all our past talks. You can catch up there or you can link to the Central Vineyard podcast. Have a go. It's great. So in the story we're about to read, the people of Israel find themselves standing on the border of the promised land. They're not in yet, but they can see it. And what we need to know is they've been journeying in this wilderness um, for a year or more. And so you can imagine that just journeying with all these same grumbly, moaning people for a year, like on a car trip, being crammed in. Um, You're all crammed into your car, maybe with your family or other people. But, you know, it's not pleasant. It's just complaining. It's not comfortable. They're not quiet. Um, And we've probably all been on a journey with those people. Um, In... 2015, um, Steve and I and our three children, we went on a a road trip um, in the States. We decided we were going to land at um, JFK Airport and we'd drive all the way to Ohio. We'd take in the sights and we'd do this massive, long driving trip. And it was a lot of daily driving. It's the Royal We, because I was the passenger, allowing Steve to navigate those scary roads. Um, but we had all these amazing stops planned. The scenery was good. We're basically taking the scenic route so we could cram all this in. But you can imagine we were tired. We had three children in the back. And 90% of the time, it was just amazing. But you know, when you're tired or hungry or, you know, the temperature's not right, you become a bit grumbly. And uh, with the children, it would be grumbling about whose shoulder was touching whose shoulder, whose leg was over the line of the car. And it was just, oh, it just got so frustrating. I think some there was one point of the journey, we literally just stopped the car, pulled into the nearest place. There was a seat in the back, because it was like a seven seat. We put that up, put one child in the back, and it was like, no one's touching anyone. This should be good. This should be good. But then it was like, she's looking out my window. She's got her own window. And it was just like, 
okay, darling, I don't think we're assigning car windows because that's not part of the trip. You know, the, 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 there's just windows all round the car. It's no one's fault. And so I, I can imagine walking through the desert. <laughs> um, it was probably a bit like that. <laughs> uh, we're on this journey. I'm in journeying, they're grumbling, and they're about to arrive at the land where they're journeying to. So they're going to be really excited and enter in to the promised land. So you think. So we're going to be starting in Numbers, uh, Numbers 13. Um, if you want to find it in your Bible, it's going to come up on the screen. I'm going to be reading uh, verses to start with 26 to 31. But just so you've got a bit of a backdrop, at the start of Numbers 13, the Lord had said to Moses, send some men in to explore the land of Canaan. That was the promised land. Um, I'm going to give this land to the Israelites, but send Send a leader from each of the ancestral tribes, so that's them, so they can go and spy the land. So upon their return, this was their report. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community of Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. So let's think about that a moment. One trip, one journey, 12 people, all seeing the same thing, but very different perspectives. So let's just concentrate on, on verses 30 to 31 for a second. I think that will come up. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Now this was 12 trusted tribe leaders. So it wasn't, it wasn't a kind of mix of, of um, people who may or may not have been called by God, you know, off they went to explore the promised land that God um, had given them. They saw the same amazing food, the same people, the same places, and they had the same experiences. Yes, no, no. When they reported back to Caleb, and we can probably, if you do a bit of reading, assume Joshua, um, that Caleb and Joshua were like, we can do it. We can do it. It's, it's great. And then the other 10 were like, we can't do it. We can't do it. And isn't that just like us as people? I imagine if we all went on a bit of a trip like that and spied the same place, we'd come back with a whole different set of interpretations and meanings from the very same thing that, that we had witnessed. And we interpret the meanings um, and the events of what we see from the inclinations of our own hearts. And we do this differently based on our life messages and our internal thinkings and the monologues that go on inside there. 
And more often than not, we can look at the situation through the lens of fear. Or we can look at it through the lens of faith. And Caleb was absolute in that. The fact that God had promised this land, so therefore it didn't matter what the obstacles seemed, because we could go in and take it. But the other tribe leaders looked at it differently. Maybe they were fearful for their lives. Maybe they were fearful for the lives of the people in their tribes. After all, they've been called to, to lead them and take care of them. And so they refused to, to move on that. And we can relate to that because it is no different to us today. We see the facts and we interpret them based on our own fears. And we, we might choose to live out of those fears. And I want to take a moment to explore what might happen on any given journey uh, that God calls us to when we choose to live out the fear rather than the faith? You know, what might some of those internal warning signs be? I think one of the biggest things that, that I recognize is that if we're living out of fear, we can often compromise our calling. We can often compromise the things that God's asked us to do. You know, according to God's word, you and I may get to experience the rich life that Jesus has provided for us. You know, he says, we come, I come to give life and give it to the fullest. You know, that's John 10. We as Christians must trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he came and said the words. And we must trust him to follow him on the journey that he's called us to in a in a less fearful way. However, on our journey, at any given point, there's probably, you probably experience like a thousand choice moments, I think, or forks, whatever, where you get to make a decision. And things might not go the way we assume they should be going. And so we take a route where we're, we're tempted to declare things like, I'm not sure Jesus really meant that for me. I'm not sure Jesus really understands what he's talking about in my situation. He may have said that, but for me, it's really difficult. So I think this is what I should do. And we usually make statements out of that, like that, because we're in fear. We make concessions about faith because we fear, despite Jesus's words to us. You know, Caleb was assured that God had spoke, and the rest were afraid. You know, when, when God spoke that this was the promised land, go and take it, surely it was a done deal. So when God says things to us, surely it's a done deal. But we do this many ways in our own lives because we fear the outcome if we don't take things into our own hands. Sometimes trusting God is just the hardest thing we can ever do because it feels like we have to give up on some of our own ideal, um, you know, ideologies of how we want to live. But actually, if we don't want to compromise the things that he's asked of us to do, we need to press into that hard place. Maybe you can think for a moment about some of the things that God has spoken, even in his word that you've read, but actually trusting him would mean you had to give up something or trusting him meant it didn't come 
in the way you wanted it, or it didn't come quick enough. So back in 2002, sound like really old, don't I? Back in the old days. Um, back in 2002, um, Stephen and I decided, um, so we'd, we'd planted the church in Daventry, um, we'd been doing that um, a couple of years at that point, and we decided that we were going to have a baby. I'm like, yeah, let's have a baby. We'd, we'd, before we got married, it was like, let's not, not ever have children, you know. And then we got to that time, it was like, oh, we'll have a baby. Um, and in that process, it was a completely, completely non-God-involved decision. So before that, when it came to getting married and church planting, we'd be like, God, we wanna, we're giving up our life for you. We want to do all the things that you've called us to do. We're going to base our decisions on on what you tell us to do. And we're committed to giving you our full yes, God. And we want to go on the journey in life that you take us on. We want to do what you want us to do. And actually, we just made this decision off the cuff that we we were going to do this. Didn't even ask God if it was part of his plan at this stage. It was just like, well, I want, I want what I want. So here we go. Um, and at the time, I already knew that I had a pre-existing condition, which meant um, it, it wouldn't be as simple as, as we're going to have a baby. So I was referred pretty quickly to um, the fertility clinic. Um, and once that, that, once that happened, I began this journey of like taking medication to stimulate the release of eggs and stuff. I was all boring. But um, this went on for a year. And um, it just, it wasn't successful in, uh, in any way. But what began to happen through that process of each time it was failing, it was like, oh, I think I'm going to connect with God in this. <laughs> Don't ask do that. It's like, I forgot to ask you at the start, Lord, but here I am. Um, and it's all going wrong. <laughs> and I'm really sorry. I need you. And it's like, of course, because God's like that, isn't it? He doesn't leave us. Um, but I felt challenged in that point where it's like, I'm really sorry, Lord. I said I'd give my yes to you and then I'm just making my own decisions. But can you show me your plan, your plan for my life? Um, and he did. He was faithful to me, actually. He gave me a dream and he said, you know, it, like, you're going to have a baby. Here she is. Her name's Rachel and blah, blah, blah. And we all know she's, she exists and she's now nearly 17 at home in bed. But the, the, thing, the thing he asked of me uh, at that time is, would I fully trust him? Like 100%. No intervention, no nothing. Would you trust me 100%? And Stephen and I made the decision that we wouldn't take any further medical fertility steps now, I'm not saying that's everyone's story. I'm just saying that was what God asked of us because I think the medical world is amazing. And I just think, you know, God calls each person to their, to their own journey. But um, back then it was a request because it talks about my future. Um, would you fully, 100% trust me? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. You know, partly at the time I look back and it's like, because I just thought the medication would work, you know. And so I was like, I'm going to 100% trust in you, Lord. <laughs> it's easier to say than do. Because when it came to the next stage and, and the consultant was handing me leaflets about IVF saying, this is, this is probably the route um, you're going to go down. And at that point, we'd then 
finished the church, we'd handed over the church in Daventry, moved to Northampton. And so it was like, you even get a free trial now you're in Northampton. And so it was really tempting. I came out of the office um, crying. And I remember Stephen holding me to the car um, because I was really gutted. I was so gutted. I was like, you know, if you've ever been on a journey like that, the pain is just a different level. And it didn't even matter that I knew God's promises. It was the pain. It consumed me. And actually, I was consumed with fear. I was consumed with fear and doubt and guilt, you know, because I'm like, all oh, these mixed-up messages. Do I trust you, Lord, because you've asked me to, and I said I would. And I could have just made my own decision to go ahead with the IVF because I wanted what I wanted. And I wanted the free try, but... I wanted it because I was afraid. I wanted it because I had this fear that God didn't really have me. I didn't believe that he had my best interests in mind. I believed a lie that God wouldn't be enough to satisfy me in our future and for the the things that he was calling us to. I was choosing my fear over faith. And I wonder how many of us do that in our situations because it's it's like our human response to just i can take this into my own hands and i can make the way you know i compromised the thing that he called me to do and i found myself as compromising the calling we find ourselves if we compromise our calling compromising truth and we compromise truth because we have fear you know, whether it's truth about God's truth or whether it's just in the moment, you know, have you ever been in one of those moments where you feel really caught out that maybe if the truth came out in this moment, you'll be embarrassed. You'll be embarrassed and you'll be reduced standing in front of those around you that um, you want to have respect you. You know, we want respect, don't we? We want friendship and so instead we lie we compromise the truth we don't take responsibility for for hurts or faults we organize ourselves out of situations which by the way is just a fancy way of saying you're lying and we don't mean to cause harm or intend anything so we just go it's okay how many times do we do that how many times do we compromise or cut corners on truth because we haven't wanted to face the pain and embarrassment of being fully honest. You know, lying is always an act of fear. And so if we compromise our calling and the things that God is asking us to be and do, we might lie as an act of that fear. And you can't lie in faith. You can't lie whilst you're trusting God to walk you into a better future. And so if we're compromising our calling and we're compromising our truth, we may find ourselves just counting the cost. You know, how many times have, have, have you or even as people come up to the edge of the promised land where we will commit our lives to Jesus? We're on the border. We can see it. We can see the promised land, but we step back in fear. You know, even someone who gets to the place where they're like, oh, I believe in this story, I believe in you, Jesus. You really are true. 
I can really believe the claims of what you've done. I really believe the miracles you can outwork. I really believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I see you are who you say you are, and I'm on the edge of the promised land, about to make a commitment, but then I walk away. I turn away because I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I begin to count the costs of what that means. What does it mean to be committed to saying yes? What impact will that have on my job? What income will that, on my income? How will I be viewed? What will my friends think? What will my family say? How much will this cost me personally? You know, as a Jesus follower, you're going to have to give up certain things, certain relationships. You pay a price. But so much so that fear equals compromise. A compromise to the life that God has called us to. And I'm sure you will all have your own moments where you can see and know and taste of the things the Lord has said, but you've taken it into your own hands. So I can't trust you. So what else do we do when we live in fear? Well, the other thing that we do is we maximize the obstacles in front of us, the obstacles that we see. So let's turn back to numbers and um, we'll go on to numbers 13, 31 to 33. We're just going to look at the, the negative report that the spies gave. They said this, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. How many times have you heard people or even done it yourself exaggerate the obstacles, the things in front of you. It's just, it's, it almost becomes part of your life, doesn't it? It was a massive, I was, I was in the queue for like three hours. It was like, you know, 10 minutes. But, you know, listen to what they say. They say, not only are these people descendants of Anak, they were a very big people, but they come from Nephilim. And Nephilim were the ancient people who were said to be giants, so these Canaanites are not only tall, they're not only big, they're like mythological giants from way back old, back in Genesis. Go Genesis 6 and you'll see that. But the people, they were in fear and they maximized the size of these people. They maximized the obstacles because it made them feel better about their lack of faith. It made them feel justified. And actually, we can really relate to that in our current cultural moment. The church, how do we as followers pick up our lives again, pick up our callings and pick up the things that God has called us to walk into when the promised land feels like we were on, a, on our way and it, and it was broken and it's been broken and it's been so hard I'm sure Jesus doesn't know how hard it is to come back from a pandemic. He doesn't know the difficulty of the obstacles I'm facing right now. How can my life ever be the same again? 
But you know, whatever, whatever the climate of our culture, we are living in wherever, however we are living, the gospel has always triumphed. It's still here over 2,000 years later. The bleakest of seasons, and we can look into history for that, the bleakest of seasons can lead to the brightest of renewals. If we are willing to not maximize the obstacles we face as we walk towards the promises God has made. One of the exciting things I get to do um, with my uh, daughter doing her A-levels, she does history. So she's always like, read this, mum, read this. And so I get to read lots of exciting um, extracts, um, which um, one extract led me to this reading. So in early England, in the 1700s, Arnold Dalimore wrote a book on George Whitfield, who was a famous 18th century preacher who brought about, along with John Wesley, the Great Awakening in England. And this extract says this, it will come up. In 1660, in the violent rejection of the Puritans that accompanied the restoration of the English monarchy, much of the nation threw off restraints and plunged into godlessness, drunkenness, immorality and gambling. The gin craze began in 1689, and within a generation, every sixth house in London became a gin shop. The poor were unspeakably wretched. There were over 160 crimes in England that led to the death penalty. Gin made the people what they were never before, cruel and inhuman. Signs over gin shops read, drunk for one shilling, dead drunk for two shillings, free straw. I assume that's so you could lay down. Women were treated even worse than men. Hundreds of hardened hookers and murderesses were locked in battle over scant and rotten rations, with mothers caught when forced to steal to keep their children from starving. Open sewer trenches for toilets ran through the cells, hundreds jammed together in cells made to hold a score of prisoners. Rats and insects were everywhere. One man took his dog to prison to protect himself against the rats, and the rats ate the dog. So... It was completely disgusting. You know, some of these books come with illustrations. It's just, they don't warn you about that. But can you ever imagine an environment like that? You can picture it, can't you? Rats gnawing at your dog. Can you ever be in an environment like that and imagine that you would ever accomplish anything? When you think about that, the obstacles look too large and too varied. But guess what happened? God got a hold of his church. And in that moment, slow and painful journey, but the country changed. It wasn't just the church or just renewal. It was like revival. The church began to impact the world around it. So From that place, schools were started, hospitals, orphanages were created, and reforms took place in prison, in child labour laws, in housing. And the whole country began to change through the influence of the church. But can you even imagine it? I imagine they couldn't imagine it. But the future reform took place because those Christians chose to believe that the obstacles in front of them were nothing compared to the promised land. 
the promises that God had made. We need to believe that the obstacles in front of us are mountable. We need to believe that the forces of opposition are not stronger than the God who has victory over and over and over again. God can and will work through people who want to use, be used to change things. I want us to walk into the promises of his calling. And, you know, I pray for that. I pray that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church in a renewed and powerful way. I'm praying that this cultural moment leads to something powerful. It leads to people being drawn to the Lord, that people across our communities and our county and our country say, we need God. I don't even think our picture looks as disgusting as that. And we have a hope because we can read about that history and see it did happen. The reform come. So take time to explore. How are you pulling back? How are you pulling back from the promised land because of fear? What obstacles are you maximizing? Because I just think it's, it's never the obstacles that we face. It's always whose presence goes with us. It's always who has given us those promises. And we as a church have a fantastic future if the presence of God stays with us. If we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if we keep welcoming the presence of God, if we keep saying yes to his calling, we can face our future with faith. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want a future that is filled with faith. So let's jump back into Numbers. Um, and I'm at the start of verses 1 to 2 again. So the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. God tells them the end of the story at the beginning. You don't need to worry. I'm giving you the land, moving to Canaan. Yeah, it's got a few problems, but I'm with you. If we, move, if we choose to move forward in faith, what we're doing is we're prioritizing our obedience. God gave the children of Israel the goal. He said, the goal is for you to go and take the land of Canaan. I'm giving it to you. He didn't say, we've got a few options here, guys. What you could do is you go and take the land. It might be a bit dangerous, or you can go somewhere else, or you can take part of the land, just take this section. He didn't. He said, move forward in faith. This is what I want you to do. Our goal should be obedience at the outset. You know, God even made it easier for them. He said, go and check out the land first. Check out the promise I've made. Have an explore of what I'm giving to you. However, that kind of led them to forget or lay aside the order of things. And that's really important. We have to get the order right. If we're going to face our future with faith, we have to be clear about the goal. So we have to be clear about what, is, what God has said before we check it out and decide if we might or might not do it. So let me make that clear. First, you decide if you're going to obey, and then you figure out, how you're going to obey. If you're going to dot, 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 plant the church in Milton Keynes, you're going to commit. If we enter the call with, I'll have a think, I'll see if I can obey, 
determine whether I'm going to do it or not, then I'll come back to you, Lord, then we're just living in fear. And we just reverse the order of things. We, we, we consider whether we can do it before we say yes. <clears throat> because our fear tells us we have to have it all figured out. We have to have it all figured out if, we, if we're going to obey God. And if we can't figure out how we're going to obey God, then we just won't do it. You know, the thing that I've discovered, God is true to his character. He doesn't reveal to me at the beginning how I'm going to accomplish things. He just asks me if I will do it. And I find myself having to walk in the right direction to walk in to the calling, you know. And a couple of years ago, when, you know, God spoke to us. So, I mean, even before that, the story will know, you know, God asked us to be a church that plants churches. And when we wrote that goal, because so that goal is still happening, we're going to be a church that plants churches. In amidst that list years and years ago, you know, Steve said, I think we'll have to be someone that goes to plant a church. And I'm like, no, this is secure. We are secure here. I love Northampton. I had children here. They're raised up in the church. This is my home. This is where my friends are. This is my life. And he's like, hmm. So then reverse a couple of years ago, then God says, I think you need to go and plant a church. And of course, my answer was no. <laughs> um, my initial response was, to, <clears throat> was the fear. My initial response was the fear. It was like, if I do that, Lord, this is what I'm leaving behind. This is my security. This is my home. Oh, and by the way, obviously, you can't just ask me because now I've got three children and they're the most important thing to me. So I don't think that um, you would ask that of me. So, you know, I, I really need to come back to this because I am not doing this to my family. And Laura said, why don't you go and plant a church in Milton Keynes? And this kept coming, and I was just like, you know the cost, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and, um, and then Stephen rang me up and said, I really think this is God's calling. I, I think we've got to do this. And I was like, okay, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need a burning bush. I'm going to need to be Moses. I'm going to need to see that bush of light, maybe one or two, and I'm going to need the direct word of you. Because if I am, if I am going to give up, because this isn't just my yes, it's my family, you know, God knows all that. It was me being human and fearful, you know. And within a few weeks of that, a friend of ours was passing how would you pass? He was going to visit some friends in Birmingham. He lives in Carlisle, but he was passing. Um, and he knocked and he was like, I need to come and see you because I've had a dream. And um, okay, yeah, come, come. And so, yeah, he came and he sat in our living room and he was like, I've had this dream. And he told us about this dream. And it was basically us coming out of Northampton and moving. Um, and he named this street that Steve had highlighted on a map a week before when he was trying to convince me that this was the Lord. And it was like, okay, I cannot deny this. And, and then we'd get phone calls or people would give us words. And this is like, this is, okay, Lord, I need to obey you. And I feel that you've, I think <clears throat> he, he's obviously more faithful than us. But in that he was showing, you know, this is my calling. And I knew that I had to obey and so he was good because he didn't just stop there. And I think I entered into um, 
some talk or conversation with someone and um and it was talking about obeying and how God has called me as a mother, but actually he's got a plan and a purpose for each of my children and it's part of their journey. And he was so good. And it was kind of like, there is, there is for me that sense that I always had to say yes if I was going to live out the calling at all of the costs. You know, he knew for me the cost for me, the sticking point for me would be my family, you know, my girls and their security. And it's like, that's mine, it's not yours. And so maybe the Lord speaks to you about things, about the things he wants you to do, the things he wants you to accomplish, the ways he wants you to make a difference. And so very often at the start, you literally have no idea how you might fulfill that. I have no idea how I'm going to find a house and live in Milton Keynes. The trust is going to happen this year. <clears throat> I'll panic at the 11th hour. My advice to you is that firstly, you just have to decide to obey him. Regardless. Regardless. And then you take one step. And it might be that he tells you something else. You don't know the outcome. It's just the next step. And in that next step, he might show you how he's walking with you. He might show you the resource he's going to bring your way. The next step, he might show you a person. The next step, he might show you the strategy. But it literally is step, step, step. It's like walking in a foggy it's like walking across one of those like rope bridges in the fog and you can like, oh, you know, but our only job is to say yes. And that's been our history at Central Vineyard here as a church. We're here from the Lord and we choose to move. And then only after the yes does God reveal the strategy. Because people move in faith, not fear. We need to prioritize our obedience because if we prioritize our obedience, instead of maximizing the objects in front of us, we emphasize God's provision, his provision, one step at a time. So turn with me to Numbers 13. Again, for the final time, we're just going to read verses 23 to 27. And I am coming into land and we're tight. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. The Valley of Eshkol is literally translated cluster valley. It's almost a mythological fruit-bearing valley. It provides abundance. The promise of the abundance that God has already spoken to them. The promise has been true but the crowd couldn't get past maximizing the obstacles. 
And rather than seeing God's provision come to fruition, they feared getting there. They backed off. They didn't trust him. Imagine how quicker or how, how the story would have changed if they actually just been obedient in that moment for God's trusted provision. And sometimes if you want to obey and God's word of provision is holding you back, it's an indicator that maybe a faith step is needed. And I believe that's the case. We need to look around us for the evidence, the evidence. If we're in fear, look at the current evidence for God's provision in our midst. His current provision reminds us that he is there. The current living standards we have compared to the 1600s tell us that nations can be transformed. He follows through. So I think the encouragement is for you to think about what are the things you see around you that show you that he is the provider. This will help us to be assured of the abundance to come when we actually move in obedience and faith because we want to maximize on his provision and not the obstacles. And as we journey into the future, as individuals and as a church, we want to decide to move forward in faith. We want to hold on to the good things God still has for us instead of shrinking back in fear. So I'm just going to ask you to stand right now.